Frank Hemolytic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Melitic, and today we have with us in our, dare I say, virtual studio, Robert Puxand. Robert Puxand is the founding partner of national architectural firm, Gray Puxand. Robert works across a variety of project types, including master planning, commercial and retail projects, and amongst many others. In each case, he brings a deep philosophy and understanding of architecture. This preoccupation with strategy and design allows him to deliver an outcome highly sought by clients. As past president of the Australian Institute of Architects, Victorian chapter, Robert has championed the value of design at all levels of the community and government. Recognising the importance of good urban design, in 2011, he established the Victorian chapter Urban Design Committee. So welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Robert Puxand. Thank you, Branko. It's lovely to be invited and, and lovely to have a bit of a chat today. Um, can I say, after a bit of technical issue we had earlier on, how is, how are you finding <laughs> the whole lockdown? I mean, you're, you're in Melbourne, right? Yeah, that's right. Yes. How are you, how yes. Are you finding lockdown? How, how, how is it actually affecting you and, and dare I say, your business in a more general yeah. Well, it's sort of, it's, it, well, it's sort of, it, it's, it, it's very interesting, really. Um, uh, look, as, as far as me personally, I'm very lucky. Oh, um, you know, my kids are older. I'm not trying to educate them here at the same time. Um, and, you know, I've got to set up a studio effectively where I can, you know, work effectively and I'll get up with the technology that I need and, you know, all of those sorts of things. So for me, it's great other than you're not really connected in the way that you're used to with people in the office and the like, which is you know, which is what life is, in my view, really about. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of people, um, you know, um, in um, in our company, you know, that are, that are in that situation where working from home is not ideal, you know, and, you know, they might have kids or they're in share houses and things like that. So um, to be perfectly honest, I think I've got no reason to complain. I'm one of the lucky ones. And, you know, from a firm's perspective, um, you know, when COVID first struck, um, or lockdown struck in Melbourne, uh, which was at the uh, start of last year, uh, we were able to transition to remote working really quickly and really effectively. And so from that perspective, it's been, it's been terrific. Although I must say, I do notice with uh, really almost everybody in the organisation that they're pretty strung out nowadays and um, everybody's looking forward to their being um, returned to uh, interaction and, you know, getting this COVID monkey off our back as soon as we can. So um, I'm looking forward to those days just as much as everybody else. I've got to say we are lucky, aren't we, aren't we Robert? I mean, you know, mm. thank God we're not, you know, in... And there's not, not that there's anything wrong with it, but thank God we're not in hospitality or in, or, yeah. or, or um, you know, having to work, let's say, in a DC or, or you know, God forbid, being proctologists. I mean, imagine the problems there. Yeah. I've got to say, <laughs> I mean, all jokes aside, you know, we are very lucky. And I actually thought about it just recently. Um, you know, I have a two-minute walk, walk to my home office from the kitchen. 
and um, yes, yeah. very slowly. And I trip over a dog three times while I walk. You must be living in a mansion. <laughs> well, I so say if I walk very slowly and trip over the dog, I usually can get there by within two minutes. Um, no, it's actually outside on top of my garage. So oh, okay, um, cool. And, right. um, but you know, I, I remember all those times being stuck in traffic, and, and to think about the carbon footprint that we do, mm. like mm. you know, with the cars idling. You know, you're, or you're trying to find parking, or yeah. Or, so you know what? Uh, we are very lucky. Yeah. Okay, I've got to say on your website, which I've been kind of having a bit of a browse of, um, it's it, it writes amongst many other things. Um, we create places of integrity designed to improve the way people work, learn, and live. Yeah. Something we, we will just kind of speaking about really um what does this look like in a practical sense and you know and i know you've got some very beautiful projects there, but can you give me some examples of, of what that looks like in an actual practical sense well look it's two things one is a how we do it and the other thing is what it achieves uh, when we say integrity, we like to design um, from the outset by knowing the reason why we're doing things. So, for example, um, you know, well, our, our work is informed by working with specialists such as educational specialists. You know, we do research. We do a lot of workshops with our clients to, uh, to understand the aspirations. Um, and... Um, uh, and uh, we'll even get our own data, you know, surveying, you know, these sorts of things. So from the project outset, um, we get a, we have a good idea of what the goal is. So for us, design is more than what it looks like. And for us, design is what is the objective that we're trying to achieve in a cultural sense, in an organisational sense. You know, these are really important questions for us. Um, and then what does it lead to? Um, um, you know, we've recently finished a project uh, for Melbourne City Mission called the Hester Hollenbrook Academy in Sunshine. Um, it's a western suburb in Melbourne. And that's a school for disadvantaged uh, students. And so um, things um, such as trauma-informed design from part of how we look at those sorts of spaces and in that academy, for example, uh, it's, it's, a it's a teaching academy or school for you know, students that really haven't had much of an educational, um, educational uh, journey. Um, there are retreat spaces. These, these people come from you know, all walks of life. It's, oh, we design the edu educational spaces so that they can adjust how they're working relative to where they're sitting from a, from a mindset space and emotional space. There is um, a degree of transparency and connectedness within the facility uh, for two reasons. One is to um, enable a sense of community uh, amongst the cohort of students, but also to enable the um, uh, educators to uh, be able to see how people are going. You know, so there's, there's the idea that this is a supporting environment there for the students that are there. Um, and then, you know, in that, in that um, academy, um, uh, we try to integrate it with the local um, uh, uh, community and uh, we've incorporated uh, work from local artists and indig Indigenous artists as well within that facility. 
So it becomes a it becomes a community, and you know it becomes a place where the people that are using that academy and uh, um, and the uh, educators themselves they're all valued, and we're responding to responding to their needs. So that's the kind of a a way of um, uh, describing what he really means, it's ticking a number of boxes, you know, why are we doing what we're doing and then what are the outcomes we're going to try and achieve and how do we do that in design? So that's what designing with integrity is about. Okay, that's, that's interesting. There is something, you use a term there, I'm, I'm intrigued, a trauma-informed design, was that what the term you used? Yes, that's right, yes. What is that exactly? Well, I think I... I you know, you know, I, th- I think with well, trauma. Look, in a workspace or in in a working environment, people have had all sorts of trauma in their lives, and and in different ways. And we do look at the way that uh, design can assist in alleviating trauma that people might be experiencing uh, in their environments. So, for example, in doing work with um, emergency services type personnel. Uh, we look at ways that we can provide retreat spaces for individuals so they can get away from the workspace and and relax. You know, I mentioned the history and you know a lot of these uh, socially disadvantaged people have come from a variety of different backgrounds that aren't terrific, and so their triggers are going to be different. And we need to understand or provide spaces for them to enable them to manage their responses. And look, even through. Um, uh, look, I reckon COVID has been this sort of situation where pretty much the whole world's population has got a degree of PTSD. And I think in workspaces moving forward, we're going to have, you know, more focus on providing a variety of environments to respond to uh, people's emotional states. And so that is the essence of uh, trauma-informed design. You design a lot of workplaces, uh, as we've as we've said, um, and as we both have said, workplaces are changing. Um, you know, our home is now a workplace. Unfortunately, yeah. people like me, you know, you, you never seem to turn off because once work stops and my computer becomes my play computer. So it's like I'm always yes. Here. But um, yeah. <laughs> do you think? I don't think I'm alone there, by the way. Covid that the workplace itself, you know, the, the concept of the workplace has fundamentally changed. And, and, and how has that affected um, the role of, of, of architects and, and, and when designing workplace? I mean, my neighbour's actually a, um, a, um, uh, a real estate agent. You know, he's, he said to me just a couple of days ago, he's really thrilled that, you know, house prices in, in, in Australia are going not only through the stratosphere, but he's even more thrilled that he's not in, he's not in the commercial side of the business because it's flat. Um, mm. So how, how has COVID affected, I mean, I, I know how it's affected him, but how has it affected the architect in terms of how you design? Do you design differently? Do you design less? Um, has there actually been a noticeable effect? Uh, well, well, the short answer to that is yes, there has been a noticeable effect. And for example, we've recently picked up Medibank's new headquarters uh, in Melbourne. Right. And uh, that environment 
uh, that we're designing for them, as well as being about uh, wellness, is really is really about um, collaboration and teamwork. So when people are coming together in an office environment, it's not so much about individual task work. It's really more about uh, the opportunities to create and cooperate um, collectively. So, uh, that's that's really the fundamental change and that the office is not so much a place for getting the job done. It's really a place where we can create and create a community. Um, and as well as that, um, you know, there's more emphasis on uh, the way that we connect and communicate with people that might be working from home. So there's, there's a greater facilitation of uh, being able to um, uh, create spaces where people can talk in video conference environments, for example, without disturbing the balance of the, 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 uh, the workplace as well. Um, so they're real changes. Um, but I, but it, interestingly, you know, one of, you know, one of the reasons for having an office in the first place uh, has become even more important, and that is that the office is, is the place where you create the culture and community of your organisation. It's where you create the identity. I mean, every every organisation is really the sum of its people. You know, it's, it's not some kind of manufactured thing. And so that's, that's, that's you know, the, the value of the office and being able to do that is, is more important than ever. And if you have no culture, you have no organisation. You know, it's... This, this is the way I think about the world. You know, other people might think differently, but um, uh, so it's going to have an increased value in really displaying the, um, you know, the values of the organisation. Okay, so keep that in mind. So one day, I'm assuming, um, the pandemic will be over. <laughs> I'm assuming, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not a virologist, but... Um, one day, I'm, keeping, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for you. Yeah, you and me both. Um, one day we'll be over. So, in terms of what you do, what does what does this post-pandemic design world look like? And just, I guess it's a hypothetical question. I know. But. Yeah. Look, I think that, well, it's a couple of things because we're designing post-pandemic at the moment. You know, so for example in the office buildings that we're working on and sort of speaking in a strictly kind of you know, practical or technical sense. Um, you know, we are trying to make those more hygienic. So, for example, um, you know, in amenities, touchless, touchless fittings, pretty much standard now. You know, and I think COVID has done that. You know, to try and make that whole experience less yucky for people. And so that's all. That's all. That's all happening. You know, and. Um, and um, so other things such as automatic opening doors and encouraging, you know, providing options to using the lift, uh, uh, people using stairs rather than the lift, you know, these sorts of things um, are all coming into um, into office design at the moment. And um, so that's informing our projects, you know, as we speak. And I think I think the other thing is, you know, we can do so much at home nowadays. So when when we get together, whether it's in the park or whether it's in the office or it's or if it's in the school or whatever, it's it's much more important that what we provide in design sense is, is effective. So I think it's gonna, I think it will lift the quality of design. People are gonna try and make those experiences where people get together um, as good and as, as effective as they can be. And where design can assist that, uh, it'll it'll do that. So I think it's I think I think the Demand is going to be there for uh, more considered design. 
I was hoping that you were going to say you're you're getting more and more requests to design those those modules where people walk in and they get hit with UV light, you know, and then they can they get disinfected. Well, it, it is interesting. Well, we are look, we are doing a project at the moment where um, where UV light uh, is in the uh, in the air conditioning system to remove uh, air contaminants, but that was before COVID. That was already in in the briefs. I always had these technologies. Uh, look, there's going to be more focus on on those sorts of things as well. But a building can only do so much. You know, it's you know, it's not a you know, they're not they're not um, controlled laboratories or something. You know, something like that. So I think they I think they'll be able to do what they can do, and then. But beyond that, design is going to have an important place. I'm Brent Kermelitic, and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews, and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. And now, back to our podcast. You founded uh, Great Pucks and um, when when was that? Sorry, nineteen ninety one. Nineteen ninety one. So you 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 dare I say, and I say this very very kindly. Yeah, you've got a few runs on the board. Um, as an as an artist, I'm, I'm, pl- I'm pleased this is a uh, audio conversation and not a. Uh... <laughs> no, I was going to say you you must have founded it when you were fifteen. No, seriously though, look. Thank um, you. Yeah. <laughs> as an architect. Um, with obviously some, you know, fair amount of experience. Who, in your mind, is your favourite designer and why? It's, you know, when you ask an architect that question, it's a really difficult thing to answer because... That's why why I ask it. Yeah, well, you know, and thank you for asking the questions. Uh, Look, you know, look, there's only great architects and designers. Um, But I did have a, a, you know, I've had a little bit of think about that um, Idea and um, and for me, John Neville is probably my favourite. And John Neville's done a he's, look. He's he's, he's I, I think he's in his you know mid seventies nowadays, but um, uh, he's always been very inventive. And you know he did the uh, Arab Institute in Paris and the Cartier Foundation in Paris, and um, you know they're great innovative buildings. And he's you know recently. Um, uh, done the um, uh, museum in Qatar and the Louvre, uh, Abu Dhabi, and you know they're, they're just. Uh, so he he he's, he doesn't have a house style necessarily. He kind of looks at the opportunities per project, and he's quite innovative. And a lot of his work is quite sculptural, and that sort of ticks a lot of boxes for me. Um, uh, he cares about how the space is used, and I'm very much influenced by um, the nature of space and how people use use buildings or the spaces that they're in. So um, he probably comes on out on top for me, but you know there are so many um, you know that are just you, you know that are that are you know just as good around the, around around the world, you know. Is your least favourite topology design or, or redesign, and why? In the kind of start of the nineteenth century, 
our cities were focused on rail travel and we really bound up the cities with rail tracks. And now, you know, whether it's Circular Quay in Sydney or, you know, you look at, um, you know, around Flinders Station in, in Melbourne, um, you know, there was such folks on, you know, connectivity with the train, but they really created these, you know, blots on the landscape from, from a from the from the perspective of people that came afterwards and the kind of connection to nature or landscape was sort of ruined ruined by that. Well, you know, we've done the same thing with cars. You know, cars have been very liberating. They've enabled us to go from, um, you know, from place to place. It's given us a lot of freedom, but we've sort of really overcompensated for them. So, our, you know, whether it's um, parking on grade or parking stations or... Or even, or even the style of architecture that's influenced from it, you know, in a suburban strip, um, you know, retail, these sorts of things, they've really created blights on our landscape that I think the next generation of designers and planners that come after us are going to want to fix. And so I suppose that is, that is my least favoured building or least favoured typology, a car-dominated one. Um, and um, uh, and really, you know, the work that we do, we do, you know, uh, quite a bit of um, precinct planning and master planning and estates and the like. Um, our focus nowadays is getting the cars out of there and getting them out of view and uh, creating uh, pedestrian-friendly, nature-connected environments. So, um yeah, so I think I think that's the, that's one of the challenges of our times, and that's probably that's probably the thing that I dislike most when I just drive around, drive around Melbourne. You know, sort of. Um, uh, there's so much there's so much bad architecture there and uninspiring environments that are really a result of the car. Yeah, inter- interesting. You're you're talking to a guy who lives in, in the tollway capital of the universe. Um, um, but I've got to say, though, that I was reading recently um, uh, about self-driving cars and they were talking that once that becomes, you know, common, and I, I don't know when that's going to happen. Yeah. But once that becomes common, that we're going to have a lot of leftover real estate or something like you mentioned, the, the car parks. So mm. what on earth do you do with car parks once the cars no longer need to be parked? Um, yes. What do we do with, you know, um, petrol stations, service stations, um, once we no longer need them because they're going to be electric, yeah? Um, there's a whole series of, I guess, adaptive reuse things that, 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 that they can look at. But, yeah, I think that yeah. the car... Well, I mean, just, I mean, just on that point, for example, when we do um, car parking within uh, buildings nowadays, we, we design so they can be converted quite readily to um, um, office accommodation, for example, um, uh, after the requirement for cars is reduced. We've done that uh, recently in the building in Sunshine where they found they didn't need as many cars as they were required to under planning, and, um, but the demand was there for office space, so we converted that car park to office accommodation. So uh, that does happen, and we're working on a project in the city at the moment when we, where we're converting a... Um, Part of a car park, at least anyway, because it's never full, because the demand has sort of dropped off in the city, uh, to, a hosp- to a hospitality um, uh, um, uh, facility. So, um, yeah, so I, I, what you're saying I think is really important in that now that we're kind of, 
knowing what the future might bring, we just need to be mindful that if we're designing car parks and things like that, they need to be convertible. Otherwise, uh, otherwise we're just, you know, um, wasting money on buildings that are, have a limited life. Yeah, that's true. Well, you know, I, I speak to a lot of architects and they, you know, I, I get very, I guess, impressions of, of what the industry needs now the most. Um, you know, everything, the whole, in fact, the whole spectrum of, of, of responses. What do you think? What does Robert Oxane think the industry needs most now? Uh, I think diversity, you know, in a couple of ways. Look, I suppose the design industry has sort of been, you know, typically mulled on that to start with and then, you know, dominated by, uh, you know, the privileged classes, I suppose in some respects as well over time. Uh, I think, I, I do think that, you know, places and offices and, you know, organisations are, are made richer when they do reflect the community more effectively. So I think diversity um, is really important. That's what we, what our organisation is trying to do. Um, and she's um, fantastic. You know, when you get, you know, the views of different people from different places informing design, it's, 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 it's really enjoyable. And I think the other thing talking about diversity is a diversity of view about what good design is. And sometimes I think that it's in too much of a straitjacket and, and, uh, and people have got the blinkers on. And um, I, I think there is plenty of opportunity and we should be open to looking at what the opportunities of different approaches to design are and what they can achieve. So less men that drive Saabs, is that what, is that what you're saying? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that, that's showing my age, isn't it? So you see. I did have a Saab, so you're, you're spot on. Look, every architect that I've ever met <laughs> has said to me, I, I'm not joking, all except one, a tone wheeling, mm. he never had a Saab. Yeah. But everyone yeah. that I've ever spoken to had either had a Saab or knew someone, or knew another architect who had a Saab. There you go. There you go. I'm I'm, I'm top cast just like all the others. Don't you worry. Um, Does, you know, you live in Melbourne and, you know, having having been to Melbourne quite a lot in my life, you know, there's a a different way, there's a different approach to design, urban design in particular in in Melbourne. Um, Do you think that living in Melbourne gives you a unique unique perspective on on design? and, And is that perspective... On the other, on the other hand, also limiting. It's a, it's a couple of, it's a couple of things. Um, I think there's a lot of support for design in Melbourne. There always has been, and you know, a belief, you know, outside of the design profession, uh, but amongst you know the community and you know your clients and the like, that design is important and it can, it can, it can create benefit to. Uh, the people that um, are using are using those spaces, and particularly at the lower level, at the street interface level, I, I think that Melbourne is is tries really hard, and I think it, it generally succeeds in what it's trying to uh, trying to do. Now, I don't know why that is. I mean, you know, we don't have the Sydney Harbour, and you know, we don't have tropical paradise, and 
And, um, you know, the weather's not always great. So maybe that's the reason why we focus at the lower level. I don't really know, but I, but I do know that there's a lot of consideration given, given to that. You know, more, more broadly, I suppose, I, I reckon Melbourne is one of the best places in the world to do design. I, I have absolutely no doubt about that. You know, in, in every one of our projects, our clients are encouraging us to do better, to do more, to think outside the square. Melbourne's not the only place where that happens, of course. You know, it, you know, it happens around Australia, it happens around the country. I, I, I think we're blessed Really, you know, we've got uh, uh, people that value design. We've got, you know, an economy that can afford to build good design. Um, um, we're we're really lucky. So uh, I, I don't think Melbourne is uh, in any way constraining. I, I think it's a it's a liberating place to design. There's a difference, isn't there, between the risk taking in Melbourne and the sort of yes. It might be sort of LA up here, but it, it, there's also a, a much more conservative un, undertone when it comes to design. Yeah, I'm sort of wondering whether that is because there's a there's a slight difference in the way that the collective community, say in Sydney, sees what it takes to bring a good city together. Mm-hmm. And to a degree, there's a there's an essence of continuity between buildings, um, and I think Sydney's fantastic. You know, I think I think it's great. It's a different it's a different approach, and and I, I think that the world can afford to support a, a bunch of different approaches. Uh, and then when you look at the Sydney skyline, I reckon the Sydney skyline is fantastic. You know, and they do tall towers really well, and. Um, so I think there are lessons from Sydney, from Sydney as well. I think that um, I think each state really, uh, you know, provides its its own contribution and shows there are different there are different ways to build excellent cities. You mentioned towers. Now that that's actually kind of topical at the moment. Um, we have obviously issues in, in Sydney, I assume in Melbourne too. I mean, I think you guys have some issues with, with cladding, um, you know, in terms of safety, but it, it's kind of the same issue. We have issues here with with towers that, that were built and uh, there are quality control issues, safety, which are impinging mm. safety issues, of course, um, yeah. and that has really caused some, dare I say, heartache for, for people who bought those units. Um, do you think overall that architects um, need to be more assertive, firstly, when it comes to, you know, this kind of quality issues? Um, and, you know, do you think that perhaps architects need to be also more assertive when we look further down the track when we talk about climate challenges? Because that's, yeah. that's the other issue that that, um, yeah. that, 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 that we're, all, we're all going to be in the same boat, excuse the pun. Um, and what would this newfound hypothetical assertiveness look like in your mind? Yeah. Well, I, th- uh, I think there are a couple of things there. Uh, in relation to quality, you are right in that architects do need to become more assertive, and that's been proven in court recently, you know, you know in that um, I think a lot of architects thought that, you know, if they were, you know, they were involved in, Design and construct project where the builder was taking 
you know, the lead on the kind of design and, you know, the solutions for the building that it really absolved the architect a little bit from, you know, from a, say, technical perspective or, you know, as technical, you can say quality as well, perspective. Uh, but it sort of has been sort of borne out that, that no, uh, actually your role to, you know, to maintain the quality of the building in all respects remains intact regardless of how the project is being delivered. So I think that's been that's that's been a, a real lesson for architects. And I think that we we will certainly get more assertive because we know that you know our our um, it's not only our reputation, our businesses are on the line if we're you know if we're approving things that we don't believe to be perfectly sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know on the being assertive on um, sustainability, um, look I had my own um, um, kind of uh, realization, you know, quite recently when you look at the, uh, the statistics as to how much greenhouse gases is caused by the construction industry and in turn by architects. And I think buildings in one way or another in Australia contribute uh, to 25% of greenhouse gases, which is incredible. Oh, we we as architects have got a real responsibility to engage and deal with it, and and I know that our company uh, is 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 doing that. Uh, but, but when it comes to being assertive, look, I'm I'm really a believer in spreading the gospel and being an educator, and you know you can. You know that old saying: you can, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. I do believe, I do believe that, and I and I, I do think that if along every step of the way we can promote the opportunities by uh, introducing sustainable initiatives or a sustainable approach in our projects to our clients, to our builders, to our, uh, you know, to uh, to the authorities. You name it, then people are going to jump on board because they because it's because we haven't really been we haven't it it, it ha, it's it's not that um, buildings haven't responded as well as they should because we haven't wanted to. I think it's because we just weren't educated enough, or the population's not educated enough. And I think that if we take on our role to lead education at all steps, externally and internally then we're starting to do our job. And I really do believe that as architects, we haven't been doing our job. So it's, it's, it's important we fix it. Yeah, I, I agree. That, that carbon catharsis that you've talked about, a lot of people, mm. a lot of people you know, yeah, do get shocked when they realise, for example, how much mm. the industry contributes, let's say, to landfill. Yeah. Some yeah. unbelievably, you know, huge amount. It's like, like a third or something to, of, of everything goes land for comes from this industry. Like, wow. And the, the, the next question, why? But um, yeah, I, 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 think, I agree. Yeah, I think that there needs to be change. And, and you don't have to be a greenie, it's just basic common sense and you know, and yes. you know, even even money saving. If you if you know if you want to save money, there are there are there are ways to save money and not and not just literally flush it down the S-bend, as they say.
what, in your opinion, is the one thing, and it's probably a bit unfair of a question, but what, the one thing that you have designed that, that you think will mean your children will be given a better world to inherit? Uh, we, we're doing a lot of work in Melbourne's West. And now Melbourne's West has typically been the socially disadvantaged uh, part of Melbourne. And, you know, it's socially disadvantaged and depressed. And, you know, the, the uh, urban environments typically often aren't great, you know, and, you know, uh, and we, we've been involved with um, a town centre in the West called Williams Landing and our company's looked after, you know, the majority of the commercial buildings in that, in that town centre. And with the developers of Peter Woods, uh, we've, there's been a real focus in creating a sense of city and town and having um, quality architecture of interest and good spaces people. And, you know, we're just a part player, you know, in a, you know, that involves a number of different skilled individuals. You know, part of a process is going to take another 20 years to finish, but it is starting to be a place now and, and a good place. And for me, I mean, whether my kids live there or not, I, I don't know, but as far as a contribution to making better precincts and places for people. Uh, uh, I do feel proud about that and I think it's a direction for the future. And I've got to say that um, typically all the cars are hidden. <laughs> so so uh, so it's a, again it's a you know it's a pedestrian oriented environment. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, I've noticed Melbourne's doing some very nice shopping precincts, um, uh, Burwood Brickworks. Is another yeah, one I think is, is yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, it's part of the way of the future. Yeah, it is, it, and it's it certainly it's something that, that I think I think actually Australia is leading um, in, in that in that area. Believe it or not, um, uh, recently, uh, well, recently, what am I saying? Fifteen years ago, now almost, oh, uh, twelve years ago, uh, when Rouse Hill um, Town Centre was was finished up here. Apparently, it was so different that they. they People came from designers came from all over the world yeah. to walk around. And think, geez, you know, and that's really good that we can do things like that. I mean, I think absolutely, absolutely. Look, I, look, I think, I think, you know, it's it's really one of my hopes for the future. Um, Australia's always had a, a bit of a cultural cringe, and you know, we've always borrowed from overseas, and we've felt that what we do maybe isn't as good as we think it is. Uh, you know, and we've always borrowed from overseas. I would like to think that that will evolve a little bit. Um, you know, I speak to one of our partners recently and we're working for an international uh, law firm at the moment who work around the globe and uh, we're doing some work for them, work, you know, work strategy piece for them for our uh, for a Sydney office and... They've just asked us to work on their Washington office, right. and it's pretty big for the you know for the international community to go. These guys in Australia really know how to do this. Let's get them looking internationally for us. So, 
there's a glimmer of hope. You know, I've, you know, I've always sort of felt a little bit disenfranchised in that, uh, you know, you know, you know, the, the world of design seemed to go top down from, you know, from the States and from Europe to Australia. Um, uh, it gives, you know, with our connectedness nowadays and, you know, the ability to speak globally, you know, I do hope that people are seeing skills that we can provide in design in Australia and, you know, assist with that process of exporting it around the world. I agree. If only we could design our own COVID vaccines. I was going to say, Rob, it's, it's <laughs> or, or nuclear submarines, dare I say. That's uh, right. Um, sliding doors moment now, Rob. Let's say you have the chance to go back in time, um, change your career path. Uh, if not an architect, what would you like to be and why? Look, um, when I was young, it's, you know, when I was young, I, younger. That's right, younger. Corrected, that's right. Uh, look, I always did a lot of art, uh, but I was also very uh, very much involved in the theatre and I and I met my wife in the theatre as well. And, um, and uh, I've, uh, you know, for a long time I've done, you know, a bit of theatre and, um, and I've always really been engaged with the storytelling, storytelling between people and stories, you know, storytelling, you know, with the community. And, you know, we've been, we've been doing storytelling uh, since, you know, as a species we've learned to speak and it's, and it's very, very powerful, you know, in, in everybody, you know, and even, even, even when, you know, as architects we're telling telling clients about our buildings we're telling the story about our buildings so you know you know we're we're all engaged by that and so you know if i if i wasn't uh, an architect um uh, uh you know maybe a you know theatrical producer or director or you know or something like that because uh, i'm completely engaged by the theatre and people telling stories, um, it's probably my number one passion. Isn't that, That's actually fascinating, Rob. Every time I ask an architect that question, I get almost the identical answer. It's, Are you serious? It's, it's always <laughs> something to do with art, something okay. visual, something communication, communicating. Yeah. Um, I, just, I find that it, yeah. Isn't it, is it like I find it interesting because you know typically we're not great communicators. You know, people would say architects are not great communic not great communicators. So I find that I find that interesting that you're saying that. Yeah. Well, maybe you're trying to communicate in another way. You know, mm. yeah. not not in a non-verbal way. You know, mm. you know, I've yet to have an answer. I'd like to be you know an engineer. I'd like to be you know a pastry chef, or you know I always mm. always wanted to be a professional ballerina or something. I've never get that. It's always something along this line, but that's Quite fascinating. Mm, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, Rob Puxand, founding partner of National Architecture Firm Great Puxand, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Branka. I've really enjoyed having the chance to have a chat. And we shall chat again, sir. Okay. Cheers. You've been listening to Talking Architecture Design. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Brank Homolytic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The 
A&E Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au.